to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Welcome to episode number 141 of the podcast, and today I'm joined by the extraordinary James Greenshields. Now, James is an outrageous human being, and I mean that in the most positive, brilliant way, and today's chat is going to change your life, and um, I can personally say that, that I was sitting here listening to everything we spoke about today, and I was simply blown away. Now, I get a lot of recommendations these days about people I should have on the show, and my father personally said to me, Dale, you need to have James on the show. He's listened to him speak twice now, and he said that he's the most inspirational person he has ever heard speak. And I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to talk about exactly why that is today. So James grew up in country Victoria, but then he moved up north where he joined the army at 17. And by the age, he was in the army for about 16 or 17 years. By the end, he was a commander of over 100 soldiers in Iraq, and in Iraq, he got blown up by a tank, and now he talks about that being the best thing that ever happened to him in his life, because it really knocked some sense into him, and that's what he says personally today, and he talks about coming back and dealing with post-distress from obviously being in the war, um, not being able to bathe his own daughter, that he was struggling severely with depression, mental health, that his life nearly fell apart with his wife leaving him, and all the combined to what he did and he did so much personal development and work on himself to be such a better person and in a great place where he loves himself and he loves each and every day. And now James is going to talk about how he did that, the steps to recovery, and now what he's actually doing by helping hundreds of people around the world with his workshops, with his talks, and particularly things like today's podcast, because this talk is going to change lives. And I can't say that enough. I, um, I, I'm so grateful that James was able to share his time with you today, and I really want you to share this episode with anybody because there are messages that everyone can take away to living a present, happy life where they are content, they are consistent, and their reputation is all about being happy in the moment. So guys, sit back. This is going to blow your mind with James Greenshields. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited. I'm joined all the way from up north from James Greenshields. How are you, buddy? Yeah, really good, brother. Yourself? I'm great, mate. Now, we're just talking a little bit off air, but uh, we're going to start at the start of your story and everything like that. But um, the reason I got in contact with you is that uh, you did a session, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, um, with my father and Dale Wright at Talking Straight in Shepparton. How was that, mate? Mate, I've done two. Two, sorry, there you go. Yeah, because Sidey, your old man, and Dale are so persuasive that um, <laughs> I've done two. Mate, and and that, that speaks of what the work that both of those guys do, you know, just really amazing knockabout blokes that just have huge hearts, hearts the size of far up, and they just want to help people. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And I know that, uh, yeah, the other day, because I, I didn't really know this, but Dad's been doing a bit of walking lately, and each day he listens to one of my podcasts. I was a bit touched by that, actually, that firstly, he knows how to listen to a podcast, and secondly, <laughs> that he's taking the time to listen to my voice, because it's not the nicest, James, but... I said to him, I go, Dad, is there anyone I should get on the podcast? And, mate, he goes, there's one bloke, it's James. You've got to get him. So I'm looking forward to today. Epic. Absolutely nice. epic. Nice. So let's start at the beginning, James. What uh, what was your upbringing like, mate? Have, we, have you always been up uh, north? 
No, no, mate. I grew up um, just about 100 clicks north of you. Um, my uh, property, you know, sheep and cattle, was uh, at the southern border of the Puckapunyal military training area. All oh, right. <laughs> so that's where I grew up, and you know, I had a major military influence. Dad was a uh, well, he was a priest, but he was a farmer, um, chaplain to the army, police, country fire authority. Mum taught at Seymour's Roman Catholic Church for about sorry, Roman Catholic school for about thirty six years. Um, so, and then you know, at the age of fourteen, I got shipped off to boarding school in the centre of Melbourne. Then joined the military straight out of school. So basically, I ticked every single conservative box and could basically be said to be a reformed, institutionalised moron. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, growing up in uh, Country Vic, mate, did you uh, play AFL? I, <laughs> I was actually just talking to one of my mates who's uh, an ex AFL guy, and he lives up here now. And uh, I wanted to like hell when I was young, but Dad needed help in the church. So one day he looked down and underneath the cassock I was wearing for being a little server altar boy, he saw his R.M. Williams boots and he's gone, oh, bugger, I'll have to think about how I get my boots back. So he said, mate, I understand you really, really want to play footy and it's on Sunday mornings and, you know, it's a bit of a sacrifice for you. How about I get you a pair of R.M.s and we call it a deal? And I said, yeah, done, mate. So so I didn't play uh, like full on footy like every week until I hit boarding school. Um, but then loved it and went through in the army and, and played a lot of army uh, footy, uh, representing the army up in, in Darwin and the, the ACT. So, yeah, footy was a, a major thing for me. And funnily enough, um, only recently, I, I, the first game of footy I watched uh, was uh, live was this weekend, the Suns versus the Cats. And that's the first game in quite a few years just because of I've done a lot of work with professional sport, but also the Asada scandal hit Essendon and it really hit my heart because – for me, when I was a kid growing up, my sports stars were my superheroes. And to see where professional sports go on today and, and how quite a lot of them have sold their soul, but it's not just their fault. They haven't necessarily been given the grounding in it. Um, you know, it really broke my heart. So, yeah, I suppose I'm a, I'm a reform watcher now. Mate, I'm uh, I'm a bomber supporter through and through as well. And, uh, I think uh, that was a really tough time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, and you just think of young kids, like, uh, when I was five and six, I was running around with uh, Paul Vanderhaar's number, number eight. And, and, <laughs> the flying doormat. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and, uh, I was on my own in the, in the backyard of the property and I was kicking the footy and I was just commentating to myself. And so, you know, that that was what I was like when I was a kid. And then I heard Alan Jean say, you should never be seen without a footy in your hand. So I adopted that. And and so to, to see... Um, our superheroes, you know, go down the line that many of them have. And you, know, you just look at um, the, the issues with NRL at the moment and you look at ARU as well uh, and then the Australian cricket. And, and I was in a, a um, cricket footy guy. That's all I, I lived and breathed. So, yeah, I just it, it, it's really been quite a passion of mine to help people realise why they actually fall off the track. Yep. Do you think? Uh, do you think with all that now, and obviously with Asada and all the issues that are going on in all different sports codes, like you just mentioned, do you think that social media and that everybody's got a phone these days, James, plays a big issue on that? Because I reckon when Paul Vanderhaar was going around and Simon, all these players back in the day, that there was no, they could get away with things because not everyone was a paparazzi watching them. Yeah, and you just hear about David Boone and his trips over. Yeah. The- <laughs> <laughs> on the plane. Oh, exactly. And and not only that, um, everyone's an armchair critic nowadays. And uh, my heart goes out, having worked with quite a few uh, professional athletes now, it, 
it, my heart goes out to a lot of them because they're not necessarily set up to understand the situation they're in and they haven't necessarily got a great grounding in, in answering the three questions. You know, who am I? What does my true self really want? And what is, what is my purpose? And if you don't have that foundation, then you're very vulnerable in life. Um, so and especially with the, the pressure put on them, et cetera, it, it's, quite, um, it, it's quite intense. I was asked to have a chat with uh, a, a, I'm sorry to use an NRL example, but You're right. I got Wayne Bennett, um, who, who you might know. I know him very well, mate. He's like the he. I think Craig Bellamy probably tops him as coaches, but uh, Wayne Bennett's right up there, mate. Yeah, exactly. And he's a really lovely bloke. I didn't know anything about him before I asked, was asked to have lunch with him, and I asked him. We were talking about resilience, and I specifically said, "So, how many of your team actually know who they are?" like really know it and he said what a great question now he told me a quick story I didn't realize he was a policeman before a coach and and uh at the age of 25 he found himself in a back street and he had to quickly pull his get out of jail free card which was his police badge and he then got home that night and sat down and he realized if I have to if I have to use my badge to get out of trouble who am I so he took his badge he threw it in the top drawer of the desk he locked the desk and threw away the key and from that day on he's he's really kept you know, I'll, I'll, true to who he is. Now, I, I don't follow the code. I heard that some stuff's happened of late, but who knows where the truth is? It always lies somewhere in the middle. But the big thing that he, in ask, answering that question, he said, he looked me in the eye and he goes, you know, only about three blokes in my entire first grade side do. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's that's a real um, that's a real statement because if if we're not helping people understand who they truly are, how can we help them really, you know, go on and live life as they're meant to really be? So. Um, yeah, that's a big passion of mine. Yeah, so and I know obviously finding your purpose, I think it's crucial because so many people, I think, just get by day to day because, you know, it's comfortable or the job pays well or, you know, but really deep down they're not happy inside. So I know we do a lot of work on purpose and we'll probably talk a bit more about that, James, what you're doing now. But um, for you, when you said you left school and you went to the army, was do you think that was your purpose at that stage in your life? Oh, what a great question, and especially the way you framed it, because so often you know people think they have to have a uh, this purpose which will last them right through life, not realizing they go through varying stages. Yeah. And one of mine was, you know, one of uh, seventeen years as an army officer. So uh, had an amazing career. The ups and downs of everything was bullied um, extensively through certain parts of it. Uh, and didn't realise that I actually attracted that type of stuff into my life at the time, and uh, and upon owning that attraction, was able to, to transcend that actual bullying aspect. But um, yeah, and I, I rose to the heights of what's called a combat team commander, or um, uh, I was I got out as the uh, major going on lieutenant colonel, and so I was able to um, been given the honour of leading over a hundred soldiers into Iraq in two thousand and six and seven. Um, and that was really amazing experience for me. But fairly young, still, you know, I was uh, early thirties, and and having over a hundred soldiers and it's quite a lot of equipment, um, you know, armoured vehicles, and that, about thirty of them. So, we, and we're given a specific task though, which was with people and completely different people from anything that I'd experienced. Um, and you know, one at the moment that uh, we're quite often pushed by the media to be quite divisive against the the Islamic community and. To actually be with them and see them in their homeland uh, and try and understand them was was quite fascinating. But in trying to understand them, gee whiz, I got a, a big look into myself. Yeah, oh, mate, I could imagine. So let's break that down a little bit because obviously you you worked your way up, and um, I know that's the main thing that Dad spoke about was obviously that you're running all these 
people in, in Iraq, but then getting blown up was the best thing that ever happened to you. Do you want to explain <laughs> that that quote? Because I've, I've read that. I saw that on your Instagram handle. And, mate, for anybody who's in Instagram, it's the be all and end all apparently. So that's what you're rolling with. What, what, what do you mean by that, James? So, yeah, uh, it was the 23rd of April. Actually, the, the whole mission lasted 72 hours. Um, and it just... It was one of those missions you just know had spikes on it, and uh, <laughs> it di- it didn't feel right right from the start. And even before rolling on the mission, uh, I, I had such a bad gut cramp, and I knew it wasn't food or anything like that. I was just really upset, but I didn't know how to say upset because I didn't like back then. I thought there were four emotions: fired up, pissed off, shattered, and numb. And <laughs> yeah, you know, they don't really roll as emotions, but no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into the operations officer in the headquarters who, like, runs the the, uh, the whole gig, and I said, mate, I've got this feeling in my guts, and it's not right. And he just looked at me in the eyes and said, shut up, cheese. I'll get you coffee, and let's watch the model channel on, on cable. So we sat there at 11 p.m. having a coffee, watching the model channel, which is the, the best description of a distraction I've ever heard, and then <laughs> 6 o'clock the next morning. Um, and yeah, I could have gone three times just on that mission alone. And then, you know, that mission I got hit by what's called a roadside bomb. Um, for anyone who doesn't understand them, imagine 20 kilos of TNT packed into a pretty much a 10 litre paint container that was, uh, had a directional, um, aspect to it, which would fire a copper slug that went at 6,000, no, sorry, 3,000 metres a second for six metres. And it was removing everything like from an Abrams tank down. Um, it was killing 66% of all fatalities in Iraq at the time. We had nothing to defend ourselves against it. Um, and that's the thing that, you know, it hit me realistically. It was my nemesis too because it was the thing that I feared the most because we didn't have anything uh, – in my, my own perception, I didn't have anything that I could defeat or nullify unless not be there and I happened to be there on that instant. But um, I survived. So, um, you know, when I found myself at the bottom of the vehicle that that um, night, because it was coming on evening, we'd just been we'd been led into an ambush actually by the Iraqi police. Uh, interestingly enough, that we asked to come and help us through town. So that was great help, wasn't it? Oh, jeez. Um, but it was an amazing ambush area. Like, um, imagine the Hume Highway, but just with boggy marshlands every uh, either side. You got you're not getting off, and we just came dawdling into it. Um, so I found myself at the bottom of the vehicle. But if if I was to tell you, Dale, that like the first thing I thought of was my men, I'd be lying. You know, the first thing I thought of was uh, Kirsty, who was my wife, and and Abby, who was um, my only daughter at that stage, and she was 16 months old when I got hit. And you know, they they were in for, for for you know they were right in the front of my mind. But I couldn't I couldn't deal with that or know why they were there. Um, and so I had to push them down and I pushed them so deep that I locked away that real emotion that I had for them. And, and then I had, you know, obviously I had to get up and fight my way out of that situation, which we did for over 10 hours. But um, that was a big thing because when I got back to the base, um, we had a, a whole heap of things go on. And it was Anzac Day and I had to get some shrapnel out of my head, and uh, which was pretty easy for them because they didn't need anaesthetic. I was so tired after just going, going, going. I fell asleep during during the operation. Why so they're they... pulling it out of your head? Uh, sorry. Why, while they were pulling shrapnel out of your head, you fell asleep. 
Oh, yeah, it was during the x-ray as well. They had, the x-ray was quite funny because it had another hand keeping my head up um, <laughs> so that I'd actually stay in front of the x-ray. And then they wheeled me out onto a gurney, took the shrapnel out of my head and woke me up and gave me the shrapnel and said, off you go. So, <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. so obviously, James, at the moment, like we, we, you can laugh about this, but at the time, that's not funny, mate. And how how close were you to dying, mate? Uh, yeah, um, pretty. So, you know that that bomb. If I if things hadn't have been different, then you know I could have gone. But the thing is, everyone in Darwin was where I was based was running around going, "He could have died. He could have died." One woman was saying, "Hey, he's he's alive. He survived." And there's a Grand Canyon between those two statements. Um, and that that woman was Kirsty, you know, and she stood by me. And I came home. I wasn't well, you know, inside. My, my physical wounds healed, you know, they healed within months. But um, my my mental wound, I, I kept with me and I kept with me for quite some time. So I went into post-traumatic stress. Uh, and so, you know, my family, if they don't get enough uh, of, of me being deployed overseas then and almost dying, they, they get me coming home being intensely angry, not really being able to communicate even though I tried um, and everything like that. And, and I'd, I'd run to work because I was really great at work. So I was what's called a high-functioning trauma and depressive case because I actually got depression as well. And, um, yeah, that, I could find solace. I could escape in work. But getting home, I couldn't seem to escape um, it's just from, you know, my daughter who just wanted me to, to, to be with her, to love her and to receive my, uh, her love. But I, I really couldn't do that because of the shame and the guilt that I felt inside. So, mate, so that's, Jane, that's pretty full on, mate. So just to break that down. So obviously when you're at work, and I think this is pretty common for a lot of people, that they really have a purpose, they've got one objective to do. And I know you spoke about that obviously with Wayne Bennett, but then when you come home, mate, you didn't have a purpose. It was that sort of you didn't know how to handle that because of everything you'd been through or you just didn't really physically know how to love anybody because you didn't love yourself or there's so many things there. What, what was it, mate? Hey, you're dead right, Dale. It was multifaceted, but um, we, we realised when we were over in Iraq why we were there and it wasn't why we were told. And as a command team, you know, leading over 100 soldiers, myself, there was over, it was near on 1,000 a uh, thousand soldiers in and around us, about um, five hundred as part of our group, um, and being you know one of the senior guys in that whole team and leading your men, you know that you look in the eyes every day outside the wire, knowing full well that you don't necessarily have the capability to completely keep them um, safe, you know, and that people could die, um, and then to realise that you're not really there because of why you were told in the first place was quite a, a big thing. I mean, it's, it's now an international relations fact that um, we were in Iraq for ulterior motives. You don't sleep any safe that I almost died. Now, just listen to my voice. You know, I don't have any animosity about that. I used to. I got intensely angry, and, and that was part of my trauma um, because I joined the military thinking I was going to become a general, and, and I joined it because I love the country and, and, and you know, I have an, a uh, social justice bent to me. I, I love um, the protection factor and, and everything like that. So uh, to be doing the real deal and, and finding that out firsthand was, was quite um, soul-numbing, and that then put into question everything I did, and it caused me to have a massive values crisis. Um, which then compounded into depression and everything. But I, could, I couldn't, I could like I'm articulating this fairly well now, 
I couldn't articulate it back then because I didn't actually, one, have the language or, or the understanding, illiteracy. Um, but two, the the military was everything to me at that moment, less my family. And if I was to, to lose that military, well, then who am I? You know, Major 3805476, James Malcolm Greenshields, ASC. So that was that was who I was. When I hung up the uniform, uh, I had this um, big existential crisis as to understand, well, actually, who am I on my own two feet? Yeah, mate. That's, so, so when you're getting back to that, like the, the resentment and everything you must have felt, how, how did you like use obviously emotional literacy or whatever? How, how did you break that down? Because um, for people, obviously not everyone's been to war and I'm so grateful and I know so many other people are for um, your soldiers and everybody like yourself, but a lot of people have got resentment in other areas of their life and they don't know how to break that down. Yours is obviously extreme of the extreme, but how have you gone about that and becoming such a you're so calm and you can speak about it so openly now and i know you're helping so many other people james but how did you get rid of that resentment the anger the hate yeah it's it's an awesome question um nelson mandela quoted probably the best psychologist ever to walk the planet he did so two and a half thousand years ago by the name of siddhartha Gautama, otherwise known as lord buddha and buddha said um, resentment is like killing sorry resentment is like taking a pill of poison and expecting it to kill your enemy mm-hmm. and and it, realistically when you understand what resentment is uh resentment eats you away from the inside um there's now a direct correlation to the suppression of anger which resentment is on the scale of um and cancer and also cardiovascular disease um anger what it does is um acid sorry it uh, toxifies the system um, causing an acidic uh constitution which then is a hotbed for the production of cancer or cancer cells which you know are in in your body at any moment in time but if they go rife they're above a certain ph level so um and anger causes that internal toxicity and so if you you hold anger if you and, and the way we hold it is we suppress it um, then what happens is you internally toxify yourself. So there's there's two parts or th- really three parts that I had to go through. The first was to to look uh, mentally or cognitively at the actual issue and uh, allow a reframing of the whole thing. And then once the reframing had occurred, that turned the tap off of the emotion, like the me- mental movie no longer ran saying they're all assholes, they're all assholes, they're all assholes, whatever the mental movie is. Um, that stopped and... Then I was able to go into the emotion. Like the healing is in the appropriate expression of the feeling. That's the the most pivotal statement ever in healing. You actually have to go into. This is what they say about going in and facing your demons. Um, the demon is the actual suppressed emotion, and, and uh, it's it can be really dark. I mentioned before, guilt and shame really plague me. Guilt's not actually an emotion; it's opinion of anger itself for doing or not doing something. But shame has anger, sadness, and fear all wrapped up in one, and and toxified you know, can be the, the the most toxic of all suppressed emotions. So uh, I had to go and I had to meet those emotions head on and I had to walk through that that uh, energy so that I could release it and it didn't suppress it in my body and system anymore. And upon doing that, I came to the other side and you know a person who's done deep healing will know it because they'll sit on the other side of the healing and it might have been exhausting, it might have been a challenge to get there, but all of a sudden this wave of a sensation comes over them and they they realize oh my god and they get a gift out of it and my gift from the roadside bomb was that that i now know my priorities in life and i've structured you and i were talking before the call about you know you asked me the question how am i how's life my life is 
awesome because I'm in this relationship with this woman who I gave every single reason to leave, mate. You know, I couldn't even bath my two-year-old daughter without splintering in rage. And the, my my youngest um, daughter, I've got two daughters, Penny's now um, 11, you know, when she was four, she would, and I'd, I got through my post-traumatic stress and I was, I was um, much, I was really just rebuilding my life. And whenever I'd raise my voice just to assert a boundary that needed to be asserted in my mind, then she'd run to a bedroom, jump in a bed and get, adopt the fetal position and start rocking. What she was doing was regressing to where she was when I was at the height of my anger, which was in a mother's tongue. And so when I realized this, it was like, holy shit. Oh, I'm sorry about the technical term on the radio, but, you know. No, mate, you're right. That's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like, wow, um, I did this. So I had to first go through and forgive myself and release the emotion that, that I had because I realized that that emotion wasn't helping Penny. She was in the predicament. I needed to move through that for her. And then over the space of a few months, I was able to help her because of my knowledge and understanding of anger. I was, I was able to help her go into it and release her anger so that she could come to balance. And I was sitting there with, a lap on, uh, with her on my lap one day, and I'm just in tears because she's feeling safe. She's talking to me about things. And, and my connection to both my girls is is phenomenal. I was sitting in the bath last night, and she's just got her feet dangling in the bath, and she's telling um, Kirsty and myself some really deep, what would be called shameful things, and she's just wanting to tell us to release that shame so she doesn't have to to burden it. And you know, and she does that because she trusts me. She trusts Kirsty as well, but she talk. I'll just I'll own this for a moment. She trusts me, and the only reason why she trusts me is because I've done the inner work. And that's, that's the gift that I've got in life, mate. So I know my priorities and I live accordingly. It's, it's so powerful listening to that, James, because so many people have not gone through half what you have, but they won't own up or admit that they've got an issue that they need to deal with. So from getting home and being in such a depressed state and, um, you know, just things not going well, family life, everything like that, what was the turning point? What made you go and seek out help and not only seek out help, but want to make a difference for yourself to be a happier person, but then also for your family? Guy, well, that's an awesome question, probably about three parts to it. And yeah, sorry, I, I went a bit long, but I'm, I'm just sitting here listening, mate. It's so inspiring, and I know a lot of people will be like, um, how can I relate this back? Because not everyone's going to get blown up by a tank and come back the way you were, mate, but you've gone from the severe of severe and been able to turn it around to this happy place now. Um, how can – I just want to know the steps or what made you – what was a trigger, you know, that to just thought, right, I need to do something about this? It's, that's, it's such a brilliant question too because so many people live in what's called denial. And if you break denial down, you can put into an acronym, don't even notice I am lying. Mm. And we, you know, we go to work, we, um, we splinter at work just because, you know, they did something stupid, they did something wrong. Well, hold on, you splintered. In other words, you were triggered. And that means that you're not actually an emotional balance. No, well, it's their fault. Well, that's called projection, which means you're not owning the emotion that you actually have. So what I'm doing is I'm giving you a script for where I was. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, one of the, the two worst, uh, worst but then turned into best days of my life were um, I was smacking Abby and I can't even, she was two, I can't even remember why I was doing it. Uh, I had a pinned face down on my knee and she was screaming and, and crying like you could imagine. Yeah. And 
I I was firmly of the belief that I needed to um, discipline her because I was smacked as a kid. Um, and on the third swing, I grabbed my hand at the, t- the highest point and I stopped and I realised what I was doing to my daughter. I was hitting the person I loved and I was doing it because of me, not her. And I grabbed her and I spun around and I started crying and I started, I'm, I'm so sorry, gorgeous. And I started howling, I'm sorry, please forgive me, please forgive me. And she was just crying and crying and crying because she didn't know what was going on. So we just cried together and and in, in time she started to return my hug. And I was I was so shattered that I was hitting my daughter because of the stuff inside me. Um, I vowed I'd never touch my daughters or anyone again in anger and, and that's what I've done from that day. But it, that was just one episode, you know, and then I couldn't even bath her one night without, you know, having to get out of the room and splintering because she just wasn't doing what I was saying. That night particularly, and this is this is what doesn't often happen in relationships, um, space, space needs to be held in relationships for people, I understand, but at the same time, boundaries need to be asserted in a, in a respectful, loving way. And Kirsty did it on a night where I was trying to bath abs, she was two years old, um, I, I had was in right in the middle of post-traumatic stress, so I wasn't that nice to be around most of the time. And although I didn't think that was the case, you know, just tell, ask me, and I said I'd be a bloody great bloke to be around. Just give yeah. me a beer. <laughs> yeah, correct. That's, that's the denial. And uh, anyway, Kirsty yells out, you know, dinner time, and I I said to Abs, can you just put the the um, toys in the basket? And she did what any two year old mucking around with dad wants to do, and that's take her own time. Because she didn't do exactly what I said at that moment, I, I just went from zero to a thousand degrees Celsius in an instant, and I had to literally put the basket down and get the hell out of the room. And I walked past Kirsty and said, "You go and sort that kid out." And I might have actually used some fairly coarse vernacular towards my own daughter uh, in that statement, but um, I said, "I can't." And I walked into my room, and there was this big full-length mirror that we used to have, and I. I stood in front of it and I just looked myself in the eyes and I didn't recognise the person I was looking at. And I said to myself, brother, who the hell are you? You're not a husband, you're not a father, you're not even a man. And that night I vowed to, I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what it was and I was a fix-it guy. It's like, you know, tell me what's wrong and I'll fix it. And I have people coming to me, yeah, cool, I'll help you. And I, I believed I was a bit to fix it. But... There's a couple of things that I didn't realise. Firstly, I wasn't broken, and no one with an adverse mental condition is broken. Their body, mind, emotions, and spirit have gone into what's called containment, or, or um, they've just they're, they're trying to hold a person together. Matter of fact, First Nation people around the world, the Indigenous around the world, will say that an adverse mental condition is simply a spiritual awakening waiting to happen. And I think it's one's a bit nicer than going straight down the shop and getting antipsychotics or antidepressants. So um, that's an aside. The, the thing is that night I, um, I turned around after the mirror and there's Kirsty silhouetted in the doorway and she's ready for another conversation and I knew it wasn't going to be nice. So I sat on the bed and she sits next to me and she says, babe, I love you and I'll always love you, but I can't do this anymore. If you don't get help, I'm taking the girls and I'm going. So in that instant, my whole life has just been – like laid down as air right in front of me and I could not escape it anymore. And so I said, good, the, the issue is I don't know what's off and I don't know what to do and that's killing me. And she said um, she actually found a person for me to go and 
uh, listened to, and she so she dragged my ass to an emotional intelligence workshop in the Sydney Masonic Centre in front of 300 people. And as we go in, she says, "Now leave your emotional baggage at the door." And I said, "What? I can emotional? I don't have any of that." Um, yeah, no, no, she don't have any of that. And I, I sat there for three days listening to this guy as though he'd been in my lounge room for the last 12 months, just completely explaining my behaviour, my my um, the the way I was going, the, what I was feeling, and everything. And from that moment on, I found someone that I could resonate with to help me through the journey. And there's a key things there. Firstly, I resonated with him. So I believed that he could, I could open up to him, I could trust him, and he could help me. And the second one was help me through my journey. No one healed me from post-traumatic stress, depression, or even my darkest day of almost taking my own life. No one but me healed myself from that. I'm the person who did that. That said, I had incredible help, incredible help that I was able to put my hand up to only though those that resonated with. I walked into a psychiatrist one day, I looked, took one look at him, he's the one who diagnosed me with PTSD, interestingly enough, in the same conversation, after I knew more about PTSD by this stage than he did, he diagnosed me as recovered. And uh, he was very quizzical because he said, I haven't really seen someone like you before. And he was a very large guy and he had more military models on his walls than I had as a kid. And I was a bit fascinated by the whole room and it was just weird and I never went back to a psychiatrist. That's for me because I didn't resonate with him. That's no slight against the amazing people out there as psychiatrists or psychologists who are doing great work. But the big point is I needed to resonate with him and, and lots of people will say, oh, I'll put my hand up and, you know, and I've gone and seen someone and it just didn't work. And I said, well, you know, if you go on the ball, you're playing footy and you, you have that attitude about going the ball, I didn't get it the first time, how are you going to go in the game? You're going to get dragged you now straight away because you, where's your commitment? Well, this is bigger than a bloody footy game, champ. This is your life. So how about you demonstrate a little bit of commitment to yourself and self-belief? And that's one of the biggest issues. You know, when we're in a really dark place, we've got no self-belief, but we don't want to admit it. And, you know, just just take one step. Just go and see one person or find someone you resonate with, that just a mate down the pub that you can say, hey, brother, I just... I just want to have a chat because I'm not in a great way. I, I don't want you to fix me because, you know, it's my own thing. I just I just want to air some dirty laundry. Would you be willing to do that? And I'll guarantee you every time, I, you know, I'll have hundreds of people in the room and I'll say, radio, if you guys received a phone call from a mate tonight who said, I'm, I really want to, just want to chat to you, is there any chance I could, put your hand up if you would say yes. Now, everyone in the room puts their hand up. And I say, radio, keep your bloody hands up. Because there's many in your room who tonight will want to make that phone call. Look how many hands are up. Just make the phone call. Mm. And it's a really powerful moment for people to realise that there actually is help there. It's, oh, James, there's so much to unpack there, mate. So one of the big things I really took out of that was accountability. Now, obviously, you were extremely accountable to yourself because you looked in the mirror, but then also to your wife. Um, and then the person you listened to for three days, and you're now doing that in your workshops where you're raising their hands and things like that. How important is accountability, not only for yourself, but for other people? Oh, mate, it's it's huge, especially up front when, you know, you're struggling to understand, hey, can I move forward, can I move forward? It's like someone going to the gym. The best thing to do is get a gym partner up front because otherwise in three weeks' time you'll probably not be going to the gym anymore, you know. You get that person that you feel connected to to start underway. And then over time, you know, all of a sudden they won't be able to make the gym this week or, or whatever, but you will still go. And so that that accountability means that we don't feel alone. 
that we, we feel like someone's got our back, not a crutch. There's a massive difference between accountability and a crutch. A crutch means you need them. It, accountability, you know, is helps you realise you've got what it takes to move forward, and that's the best way to set up accountability. If you're setting up a crutch, you're actually setting yourself up for failure um, because what you do is you'll actually – there's an underpinning subconscious program there, which is that I am not enough, and so what you'll do is attract situations, people or events to prove the fact that you aren't enough if you set yourself up with a crutch. So a, accountability is, is, is really massive, and, and the other thing is the biggest step you take – the bigger reflection of that step you're going to receive. You know, what you what you sow is what you reap. Um, it's the old law of karma. So when you put yourself out there in the world and you go, right, <clears throat> my time, I, I am ready. The, the old adage is when the student is ready, the teacher will come. And mm-hmm. I've seen it myself constantly just where in my varying stages of life, but also, you know, with people turning to me and go, you've got no idea, James, that the – the power of this work that, that I've been able to do with you. And I flick it round to them and I said, the big thing is, man, you've got, you've got to start to understand the power of yourself. You've attracted me into your life and all I am is a mirror that's sitting there helping you remember who you are. I'm not teaching you anything. I'm simply helping you remember who you are. And they get that. And it's a really, really powerful moment in the back of a person's eyes when those light bulbs go on. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I know that. And uh, the thing I Thanks. see a lot of these days, James, is that people are scared of failing. People don't look at it as a lesson. Like you just mentioned before, when you go and try and pick up a football, it bounces left, right, everywhere. You don't know. You're not going to just say, right, I'm done. I'm going to stop now. Um, do you think that comes down to vulnerability? People are scared to put themselves out there. And I suppose that might reflect back in shame, like you were saying before, but people don't want to look vulnerable. It, mate, you know, one of the big ones, which is why I never ask a person to be vulnerable. And Brene Brown is a beautiful lady. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, and strongly recommend her work. Um, and her TED talk, if, if, you know, if you're not huge into reading books already, just listen to her TED talk. It's not huge. It's all about vulnerability and shame. It's a great one. The thing is I, I don't ask people to be vulnerable because immediately you do. Just feel the subconscious reaction to it and there will be defense. There will be guarding. You'll be wanting to protect yourself. So what I do is ask people to be open. And asking people to be open, that then goes, okay, oh, yeah, well, hold on, how do I be open? You know, what's my first step? Cool. If you're asking what's my first step, that immediately means you are able to and you're willing to take that step. So all you need to therefore to be done is shown. Um, and so in our work, you know, we really, especially talking to women who are going, James, how can I help my man? You know, I just want him to be vulnerable. I said, well, just wind the apple cart up a little bit um, because if you're asking him to be vulnerable, he won't necessarily be able to do that. If you ask him to be open, he's, he might be more willing to, and I say might because it's all an individual thing, yeah. be willing to go down that road. I was around a campfire the other day, one of my campfires, because I, I take men bush, and, and uh, one of the guys just stood there, or sat there, I should say. He was mid-30s, a um, couple of kids, loving wife, loved his wife, loved his kids, and with tears in his eyes, he just goes, I've been sitting here and I've been listening to this, and... The biggest issue is I love my family, I love my wife, I, I want to talk to her, I try to talk to her, I just don't know how. And he just started to cry. And the big thing is it, it, one of the reasons why divorce rate is so large in this country is because, and you ask women why they left, and they'll say lack of connection. They might, they might say lack of communication. Lack of communication simply means lack of connection. So then these blokes say, 
I'm really crap at communicating. And I said, well, mate, I completely understand what you're saying. You just told me you think you're really bad at communicating. So therefore, by virtue of the fact I understand what you're saying, you're actually really good at it. And they all, hold on a minute. What do you mean? I say, if you don't understand how a power tool works, can you explain to another person how a power tool works? (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. So how about we help you understand how the power tool works? Then with your great communication skills, you will be able to actually explain it. That then gives them, oh, okay, the first step is to know and understand how my emotions work, how I can actually speak, the term is speak from the heart. So how can I speak from the heart? Well, yeah, we've got to go through this love, peace, joy, anger, sadness, fear, shame and guilt. We've got to understand the, the basics emotions, how they work, what they mean to us and, and what they're showing us. There's no negative emotion. There's just emotion that's attempting to provide us a message. The negativity comes because we see a negative consequence to the inappropriate expression of that emotion. And, you know, just turn on the 6 o'clock news and you get anger, shame, sadness right on your face. So um, that's, the, that's the thing that so many people, and it's not just men, it's, it's also women going through their own trials and tribulations. Um, it's just women are more what's t- colloquially called right brain, so therefore it's said that they have more access to their emotions. At times, though, I've found they have an access to a certain point but are still ruled by their emotions. And in archetypal psychology, we use this thing called the warrior. And the warrior never acts in emotion. They always act from emotion. And it's a really pivotal thing for anyone to understand. Oh, so many things that people can impact from that bit there, James. And I know a lot of people do have those issues of communicating that they can communicate when they're – I think it probably comes down to their purpose. You know, a lot of guys, if they're using a tool or something they're comfortable with, they're able to articulate that. But in a situation where they're not as comfortable, then they'll say they're no good at it or they can't do it. So I suppose you've got so many different skills now as a leader, what you're doing with your workshops around campfires like you did – twice with my father and Dale riding Talking Strange Shepherd. And what different leadership skills do you have now than when you had your 100 soldiers in Iraq? Another great question. I, I'm really loving this chat, though. Oh, well, thanks, James. I, mate, I'm sitting here just gobsmacked with the amount of, amount of things that you're saying, mate, that not only can resonate with men, kids, adults, but just everybody because I think deep down people have got so many different things they either resent or that they're not happy with in their life or they don't have a purpose. So, I, mate, I'm, I'm just loving this. So that's I think this is a really interesting one because you've obviously completely changed the person you are. But I'm wondering what leadership skills you may still have that – the same or that's changed a little bit mm. um just what you said completely changed the person i am no i haven't actually i've actually just come back to who i really am <laughs> that's it well that's that's well i suppose you've done a bit of a you've gone down a bit of a half pipe as a skateboarder really mate you've, you're up the top now you've done you might have fallen off down the bottom but now you're doing a kickflip up the top yeah yeah that's a great example so what one of the biggest things i've realized is so many people go through life with this act on this facade this mask and they do it because they believe they need to be seen a certain way or interact with the world or that someone's out to get them and i had a massive mask you know but when you when they first asked me what it was i said i don't have one and they said "Mm, okay so how do you live life i said i'm a happy-go-lucky gregarious fun-loving guy and then i started to realize when i did a bit of more digging that oh my goodness I need to be seen as a happy-go-lucky, fun-loving, gregarious type guy. And if I'm not seen as that, I feel hollow. I I start to get really nervous uh, and everything like that. And then I realise, okay, if I have a need to be seen like that, then it's obviously an act. So what I realised is I held myself, I held this image of myself out there 
my self-image, and and I needed people to be to see me like this because I didn't want them to see the the what I perceived was the real me, the wounded me. And the more I went in and healed the wounds, I realized, well, actually, hold on, no, they're not the real me anyway. They're just wounds that I've had. A scar is not me, and I've got a few scars. It, it, they're not me. They've, they've gone towards an experience, and if I've chosen to learn the lessons, I've actually grown from it. Now, if I suffer from anything, which I don't really use that word that much anymore, but uh, if I suffer from anything, it's post-traumatic growth. You know, the, the worst days, the darkest days of my life are now the, the best days of my life. I can't say the best because best day of my life would have to be put up as getting, you know, courtesy marrying me and, and then having kids over the first two. But then they come in, you know, very close third and fourth, you know, you've been hit by a roadside bomb or not been able to bath my daughter. So that, because there's so pivotal moments in my life where I was able to, to let this act or realise I had to let the act go and, and come back inside. So coming back to the leadership question, um, I've done so much. I was 17 years in army officer, yeah, and and I was doing fairly well there. As a matter of fact, my last one of my last years was I was put on a promotion course for lieutenant colonel, which was like uh, 12 months of university for military university and stuff. So I was I was doing fairly well, and uh, the military wanted me to keep going. As a matter of fact, they were quite um, confounded when I actually said I was I was leaving, and so well. All these military, all this leadership stuff I've done, what is it? You know, where do I sit with it all? And and then I started to realise that there can be so many models of leadership in the world, but everyone I've seen, I've always come up with something that's not right. And then I realised the one thing that is right is understanding who I am. So I've also developed this um, construct called harmonic leadership. Um, I don't. I believe we need to, as a society, let go of this word sustainability because sustainability equals um, survival. It means that things um, go into a status quo, and nature does not operate in a status quo. Nature operates in harmony. Um, harmony is all about growth and death. Um, and one has to understand that death is a natural part of life, and death is a natural part of a gum tree's life. You know, it will break off a limb to know that it goes back into the soil to regenerate and give the nutrients for the the tree to be sustained and everything else in the forest is in natural harmony with it. In my humble opinion, we've got to go back to first principles and realise that uh, as as leaders, as people, we need to develop a harmonic relationship with our environment and realise the impact that we're having on our environment and and notice where collateral damage happens or unification action happens with the two of the, the pole opposites. So if we don't understand this, then uh, we're going to really, really struggle moving on, and and our, our kids will will you know bear the brunt of this, which is why one of the programs that I run is called the Young Warrior Youth Leadership Program, which is based on the rite of passage process, um, because I, I really want my, my children, you know, both my children are graduates of the program, and um, by request, not for me forcing them, they're actually my youngest just keeps wants to going on it, you know, and she, where can I go on it? Can I go on it? Settle down, pen pen, settle down. <laughs> It's like so, but the big thing with that is uh, is understanding who they really are. And so, the three steps of of harmonic leadership I see is firstly purifying ourselves. And I had to do that. I had to go inside, work out where my acts were, work out where my wounds were, and, and do that inner work. And mate, the, the journey hasn't stopped. Otherwise, I reckon I'd be dead. You know, I, I still find wounds, and I found one the other day. Um, but I am enjoying that process as opposed to suffering through it. And and that's a, a massive, uh, massive shift for me. So purifying self is the first thing as a leader, but then unifying team, understanding how team works, understanding that everyone brings their own baggage to the table, but helping. Can, can you as a leader – 
uh, help a person identify the issue and then solve it. Not you solving it, but equip them to solve it so that you become naturally redundant within the actual space because the, the group, the team, starts to actually organically build within themselves and you can then focus on the vision and, and guidance and everything like this. And, it, and it's, a, it's a much more enjoyable process. But then the, the third part after unification of team is ampl- amplification of impact. And what I'm finding is my message resonates with people because of the purity of it. And I couldn't own that statement for so long, by the way. I thought it was bloody self-absorbed and arrogant and all that crap. <laughs> and and I, I didn't realize, well, James, if you don't own it, man, who's going to own it? And you know, you've been told by so many people that this is the case. When are you actually going to own that you are, you, you've done the work and you're standing from a pure place and therefore, from that pure place, you want to help people. You want to be of service, not in service. In service breeds resentment. But being of service means I have free will and choice to engage in being of service to a grander cause, to something bigger than myself. Um, so in essence, you know, so much of what I knew as a kid as leadership has been has been refined and become conscious as opposed to unconscious competence. Now I'm consciously competent within what I'm doing and Therefore, with that comes great power, but also with great power comes great responsibility. So therefore, I have to go back to basics and I have to keep asking, who am I? What are my principles and values? What do I stand for? What's my vision? And we as a family, one of the reasons why I'm so happy at the moment is our family just sat down the other day. We've worked out our vision for the next phase of our life. And because Abby's 13 and Penny's uh, 11, this is the first time in a family vision, they're actually bolting their own personal visions into the family vision. So every one of us has um, an individual vision and then we unify that on the umbrella of the family vision and it's really really powerful for them because previously they were just absorbed in the family vision so i'm really feeling like our family is is this unified team right now wow so so many things there james and i want to i'm going to get to the programs you're doing because i want to talk more about that and um just to sum that up really so really owning everything you're doing and and i suppose that all reflects back on where you are now so just the last sort of question about that and i love what you mentioned about leadership the three states and everything like that but so when you look at your life now what how can you i love that it's very hard to do but how could you define happiness what what does happiness look like to you now is it sitting down with your family doing like your vision like you just mentioned or is it helping so many people around australia and the world and things like this what does happiness look like to you right now james being gratitude being gratitude um, I think the hunt for happiness is a killer. It's a cancer in, in our society at the moment. Um, yep. And uh, so many people are, are struggling with it right now. It, it, if uh, if they're hunting happiness, it means they're focused on not being happy, which therefore will be their, their rudder. So um, what the biggest thing I've learned to do is to be, to be in any moment. And when I be in any moment, then I work out from there, okay, then from now, I'll, I'll, let's let's put it this way. If I want to be a certain thing, if I want to be happy, okay, what do I have to do to be happy? Therefore, in doing that, what I will have is exactly what I want. So, but Australian society is very much have to be. I, I need the house to get the house. Um, I'll then have to do the job, and then I'll be happy. So it's a byproduct of doing this, you know, slaving through life, and that's not life. That's not living. So you know, one of the things that I've, I've taught myself, and it's taken quite a long time in training, and I train myself every single day, you know, to, to remain good at kicking a footy, you've got to keep kicking the footy. So um, it's, 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 life's not that hard, Dale, I've, I've found out. You know, a lot of people think it's very complex and everything, but in essence, 
you know, as Einstein once said, you know, a genius is a person who can explain the most complex thing to a lay person. And what he was saying is you don't fully understand something, then you will think it's complex. When you truly understand it, you'll actually see the simplicity to it. And it's probably the cosmic joke about why all the sages of old always walk around with a big smile on their face because they were just laughing at everyone thinking things are complex. <laughs> but, but, but so, you know, if, if I be, then what I can do is, is actually see the, what's amazing in my life. Now, neurologically, if you're in a, a um, state of gratitude, which is actually, by the way, a wave produced by your heart, not a brain, but what that wave does neurologically is shuts down the centers of fear in your brain within the limbic region of your brain. So you can't actually feel fear when you're in gratitude. Um, and, you know, we see it as a, uh, just a practical thing of this. Every night when we have dinner, doesn't matter if we're, we watched a movie last night over dinner, but most of the time we'll be sitting around a table. We will hold hands and we will say one thing, or if you're Penny, ten things, that <laughs> you're really grateful for. And so when it comes to Dad, Dad then goes, um, I'm really grateful my meal's very hot so that after gratitude we can still be having a hot meal. But no, we've, got to, we've got to find something that you're really grateful for about the day. Now, the girls used to run, you know, oh, I'm really grateful that Nana's coming down tomorrow or that we're going to the movies tomorrow. We'll wind the apple cart back. That means you're not grateful for what you have. Yep. So they have to be grateful about something in the last 24 hours. And then they can also be grateful about what's coming up because that's just, you know, loving life. But the big thing is they have to be grateful about something they've had in the last 24 hours. Yeah, and yeah. Do you think, I just think that everything you just mentioned, it, it's just all about being present. Mm-hmm. It's just being present in the moment and it's not I'll be happy when, I'll be happy whenever. You've just got to be present, and I think that's what gratitude does. If you can stop and just look at something you're grateful for or feel something you're grateful for, that's as simple as it is, isn't it, James? Totally, mate. You just nailed it. Mate, you're okay. Very eloquent. You just wrapped up everything I took, you know, 15 minutes to say. You just nailed it. In about- <laughs> mate, Thanks. I think you said it that well, and it was pretty easy for me to just sum that up, mate. I was pretty happy with that one too. Thanks, buddy. Now, um, let's, get, let's get on to the amazing work you're doing, James. So resilientleadersfoundation.org. Um, I know you're doing other things, but let's talk about it, mate. What, uh, what's involved as a three-day course? Um, well, it offers many things. Um, RLF is our whole mission is to empower young people with the skill structures and resources to you know, inject themselves into their family and community in a harmonic way. And um, that means, you know, we do a lot of work with families. We do it with young people. Um, the event that I've got coming up is called Burn Time to Rise. It's a three-day event in the Sunshine Coast from the 7th to the 9th of June. It's actually not out bush. Lots of people say, hey, are we going bush for this one? Said, no, no, no. no. <laughs> we're in the city. Okay, it's okay. We're on the sunny coast. Um, and, you know, that's it's a big one to help people recalibrate, reframe, and, and then really work out where they want to in, um, inject themselves into life. So many people are waking up that they've got so much more to give life. They just need a little help in recalibrating and then to um, focusing and, and nailing it forward. It's like the old adage, a 100-watt light bulb will actually light up a room, but a 100-watt laser will cut it in two. So, um, you know, just helping them really get get clear, but let go of the crap that they don't need anymore and and then and move forward. So that's what Burn's all about, hence the you know, Burn the Phoenix um, rising out of the ashes. The other stuff I do is take men bush, you know, waking the warrior within very archetypal, psychologically asking three questions, who am I, what's my purpose and and what do I truly want and really connect into themselves in 
in a deeper way. That's a, that's a, I only take small groups of men um, there. I like a campfire. I like, you know, six to eight blokes. And um, we spend four days out bush. Um, it's quite funny, you know. We dig our own toilets and, and some people coming out of the city go, what? And I say, I always have a competition. Who can build the best toilet, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we, we do a lot of that and we spend it. That's just as blokes. Kirsty runs the the, um, the same one for women. Um, it's not done out bush. Uh, they they uh, they use the creature comforts to also, you know, get into a nurturing space. Um, but then our biggest program is called the Masters in Conscious Leadership. It's a 12-month program where we really help people break themselves down to understand their, what they really, really stand for and what, how they really, really want to inject themselves into the world. And then, you know, we build them up and go from there. So RLS is a charity. It's a, it's a national charity. Um, and we're really, really happy with the way that we've been able to construct that. And the Young Warrior, we run between 11 and 16. Uh, and we do. We, we just finished up one of the rites of passage on that. Uh, we just left the young people in isolation in the bush for over 36 hours and the teeming rain and everything like that. And to see them come out of that experience, each one of them peaking you know, in different ways, um, but to, to see them want to be challenged, want to be tested, you know, so that they understand their own metal inside uh, and they get a grounded sense of self-confidence instead of an overinflated opinion of their own self-worth, um, you know, that – that was just a, it's a beautiful experience. But the Rite of Passage actually is an 18-month program and it's because the, they, the Indigenous like train their young people for 12 years before they put them on a Rite of Passage instead of, you know, letting someone else do that for you at school and then um, taking them down the pub and giving them a beer and throwing them the car keys. You know, well, you probably shouldn't do the both things on the P's and L's, but, you know, you know what I mean. That's, that's not a rite of passage, you know, and a rite of passage is, is uh, directly built so that a person will have a mental, physical, emotional and spiritual, um, whatever that spiritual language is uh, for them. But to, to understand the meaning of, of, of their existence is, is really pertinent for a young person and so many young people are struggling with that right now. Yeah, they definitely are, and I, I've got so many questions here, Daniel. I'm aware of the time. I've just got a couple more before we finish up, and I, this might be, what, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself uh, from working with these young kids and seeing exactly what you just mentioned, you know, dropping them out in the bush 36 hours, seeing how resilient and what they're able to do? What's the most amazing thing you've learned about yourself by being around these young people? That I have my own answers. And I always have. And that all I have to do is be willing to ask myself the question and then know that I can actually answer it. Have the self-confidence and trust, self-trust to realise I actually do have the answer. I've just got to allow myself to see it. These young people astound me every time, you know. People say you can't make them do that, what you're just about to do with that trailer, make them push it up and down, do this, that and the other. Well, if you're going to bring that attitude into my camp, can you please just stand over to the side and wait to be amazed? And every <laughs> single time, it's like it's like when I train mentors. It's school going to a school, and you know we do the young warrior. And we we train up mentors to come out with us. So the first thing I say is on the first activity, stand back. You are not allowed to engage the kids. And just watch how I engage them. But you know what about risk? What about all this stuff? No, that could yeah, be- of course. Yeah, yeah. Don't think of a green frog. Don't think of a green frog. What's currently bouncing between your earlobes? So, what we put into a child's mind can become reality for them. We've got to be really careful of that. So, I've learned personal responsibility in the fact that I've got I've got everything I need, and it's come from just watching these kids. 
Yeah, yeah, so that's so true, mate. I think we can learn so much from kids. And one of the big things I talk about a lot uh, in everything I do, James, is just how much they play and how creative they are and that we shouldn't beat this out of them because, um, as we were just saying, the adults are talking about, what about the wrist? What about this? You know, the kids will figure it out. They're not going to want to hurt themselves. Yeah, exactly right. Now, two questions to go, mate, because I am aware of the time, but uh, I always like to finish my interviews with this. And if you could look back to 18-year-old James when – well, you'd been in the army for one year, I think, and you, um, everything you've done now over the, the amount of things you've gone through, the half pipe, um, being blown up, family life, everything like that. If you could look back at 18-year-old James, give yourself one bit of advice from all the wisdom you have now, James, what would that be, mate? Make sure you sleep straight in bed every night. Make sure. <laughs> what do you mean, mate? You don't like uh, bending your leg? <laughs> my old man, as soon as you said that, the only thing that came to mind was the words of my old man. And he says, it's your choice whether or not you sleep straight in bed at night, James. And what he meant is live true to yourself. Understand your principles and your values and, and don't let someone else dictate how you live like that. You know, If you need to walk away from a situation because it's a lack of integrity from yourself, then do so. If you understand that sometimes the the loyalty you're sprouting to an organisation or a person is actually obligation instead of actual loyalty because obligation doesn't sound as nice as loyalty, then realise you're not going to sleep straight in bed at night. So know your principles and values and live them, James. And that was um, a huge lesson for a young kid to have and I realised the reason why at times I wasn't sleeping straight in bed was my own self-choice about how I live my life. Extremely powerful, mate. And the final one, what legacy do you want to be remembered for? I know you've still got a lot of good years left in you, mate, and you've got a lot of great work ahead, but when it's all said and done, what do you want James Greenfield to be remembered for, mate? What, what's your legacy going to leave on the world? Uh, that, that it's okay to live with an open heart. It's okay to be me. If my daughters understand one thing, that they are completely capable but they're completely fine in just who they really are, then they've got life. And I've had this conversation for the last two years with them. I said, if I die today, don't be, you know, you'll go through sadness, but it's okay. You've got life. You do not need me anymore in your life. You've taken everything you need from me and you've got it. You're equipped. You, you know, you'll be 16 and be facing down that boy who'll be trying to make you do something that you don't necessarily want to do. You will know what to do in that moment. I do not need to stand by you. You have life. And that's what my, I want my legacy to be. Everyone has life. Everyone's got it inside themselves. Oh, James, well, mate, I've, uh, I've done 140-odd podcasts now, and that is one of the most powerful uh, inspirational things I've ever ever heard, mate. So I, I'm blown away, and I can't wait to share this with everyone. I know everyone listening to it will be exactly the same. So, where can we find out about the programs you're running? Where's Where's the best way to contact you, mate? Um, on Facebook's a really easy one. Just Resilient Leaders Foundation. We've got a page, or just connect with me on Facebook, James Greenshields. Um, yeah, and that's that's probably the easiest way. If you want to email because you like that, it's just info at resilientleadersfoundation.org and the website, as you mentioned before, is resilientleadersfoundation.org. Awesome, James. I'll have links for all of that on the show notes, guys. This is episode number 141. Now, James, mate, 
that's an hour of your time that I, I know will impact so many people in my listeners and it's impacted me, mate. So um, from the bottom of my heart, and I can't wait to thank my dad because he did say it'd be very impressive, but I think it's uh, outdone anything I could ever imagine. So thanks for your time, mate, inspiration, and not only that, the great work you're doing with the probably the purpose you're on now. It might be a little bit different than where it used to be, but what you're doing now is amazing, mate, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, so I really appreciate that you've been able to have a chat with such a person who listens and asks great questions. And to your listeners, remember, you've got life. There's only one of you on the planet, therefore you've got a reason to live it. Mate, powerful way to finish. Thanks, James. <laughs>